0: This is Fresh Ed, a weekly podcast that makes complex ideas and educational research easily understood. I'm your host, Will Brem. Welcome to our first episode of 2022. Over the past few weeks, we've been a bit quiet, but we've been hard at work producing the next round of Flux episodes. They're going to be awesome. Developing a new podcast, more details on that later, and figuring out how to engage you, our listeners, in more ways. We are thrilled to be back and we are looking forward to our sixth year. One of our goals this year is to highlight the work of PhD students more regularly. So, to kick things off, Michael Cipher and his PhD supervisor, Laura Perry, join me to talk about school segregation and compositional effects across countries.
1: For me as an individual, I had no interest in university until I got into my last year of high school. Um, And that didn't matter because I was in a comprehensive school system and it gave me that flexibility to be able to make a choice at that stage. And I think that's, for many young people, that's what they need. So that's one way of um, addressing this as a problem. And I think another is to look at ways of promoting and encouraging public education in national school systems and moving away from some of the market-based reforms. Where you're trying to introduce competition between public and private schools through, you know, funding, you know, creating vouchers, things like that. Um, those things, uh, those sorts of policies create segregation within school systems as well. And then that segregation increases the school compositional effect.
0: Michael Seifer is a PhD student at Murdoch University, where Laura Perry is a professor. Their latest co written article with Andrew McConnie is entitled Does School Socioeconomic Composition Matter More? In some countries than others? And if so, why? Which was published in the journal Comparative Education. Michael Cypher. And Laura Perry, welcome to Fresh Ed. Hi, Will.
2: Thank you. Hi, Will.
0: It's really great that you can both join me today for the first episode of 2022. And we're actually going to be talking a lot about schooling and issues of socioeconomic status and segregation. But to start, I guess the broader question is, why is it that we see schools so often as sort of a social leveler, as a way to sort of decrease inequality? Why do we assume that? I think it's because we
1: view schools as a place where we offer the same opportunities to learn to young people, you know, no matter what their background, what their advantages or disadvantages may be. Um, So it's really a hope that the academic sorting of students is based on the effort and talents of the students, not on their family background. So a talented or hardworking child from a disadvantaged background uh, can achieve excellent academic results without any barriers from their background. I think that's what that hope
0: so there's some sort of meritocracy at play where it's you are rewarded for, you know, the merit that you can display and show and schools will live up to that meritocracy regardless of student who, you know, whoever their, whatever their background is.
1: I guess that's how I hear it expressed in Australia. That's pretty common message. I guess across, you know, all political spectrums that's commonly expressed.
0: I guess, you know, not all schools are the same though and that notion of meritocracy and living up to this uh you know ability to be a social leveler doesn't always happen so i guess what might start impacting the ability to decrease inequality or to live up to that meritocracy like what actually what might actually happen to prevent meritocracy from being enacted well there's
1: many factors that can act as those barriers differences in resourcing of schools, geography, students from uh, different cultural backgrounds that may not be catered for, um, students with disabilities, students in areas with high concentrations of poverty, um, or students um, coming from backgrounds where family culture may not match up with the dominant culture that's valued in a school. Those sorts of things can act as barriers that can be a real challenge for schools to address and for school systems to address.
0: And what about the school system itself? Like if the school in different countries is just sort of organized in different ways, does that impact it as
1: well? That's certainly what our research has found. And I think it's pretty consistent with a lot of research is that the way curriculum is structured in schools and differentiated across schools makes a big difference to students' ability to participate, to have that opportunity where all children have the same opportunities. So, for example, you know, differentiation between schools straight away puts up a difference between schools that creates barriers that stop or impede young people from being able to access opportunities as other students may have within the same system.
0: So, what do you mean by differentiated between
1: schools? What does that mean? In some education systems the curriculum is differentiated quite significantly between schools so you'll have different streams between schools so that some schools will offer an academic curriculum aimed at preparing young people for university education. And then you may have another stream that's a vocational stream. We're a very strong focus on preparing young people for the workforce after school. Then you may have, you know, another stream that is, you know, somewhere that in, in between that may offer both. And so th- those differences put young people on different academic tracks that have long-term consequences for their future opportunities in terms of academic participation.
0: If you were a child, you know, what would it actually be like to pass through some of these different systems that michael's bringing up
2: so in a, in a country with a differentiated secondary school system you know where you have these different tracks it's they're academically selective the most the one that's the academic preparation one and that would be called gymnasium in central europe lyceum um in france or grammar school and in, in england back in the day um those schools are, the academic preparation ones, are academically selective. And what that selection is based on, you know, depends on the country. Germany, for example, when kids are moving into that track at a very young age, it's one of the youngest in Europe after about, I think, year five. So this would be at lower secondary or upper primary, depending on how you define it. Those kind of trajectory into the academic stream, which is more highly valued generally in society is based highly on teacher reports and teacher recommendations. And right away, this sets up um, issues for students from certain backgrounds that maybe don't necessarily fit that kind of expectation of, of what a student is. And and this just gets back to this whole idea about meritocracy, is that whenever we have a stratified system where some schools lead to better opportunities than others um, or some types of schools lead to better opportunities than others or some types of schools are more highly valued than others whenever there's that kind of stratification where some are better than others you're setting up a system where people are going to be competing for what's more highly valued and people that have more resources and families that have that more resources are always going to be advantaged by that because they have more resources to bring to the competition. If you think about a sporting analogy, you have a kid that's been taking tennis lessons for 10 years versus one that might have a lot of the natural talent, but's only had lessons for a year. The kid that's had those resources, that more training is going to be more successful on the admission test that's based on tennis skills. So this is what is really the kind of the heart of the problem. It's not a pure meritocracy. And when the stakes are high, it can be really complicated.
0: So in these differentiated schools where there's these different streams that children get tracked onto. You're you're saying that in some systems, a child has to be evaluated by a teacher or teachers that then determines the path that that child ends up taking in future years. Does it also happen by examinations in some systems? Which systems?
2: Well, I could speak about the Czech Republic, for example, which is where my children have gone to school for part of their secondary school. At about 25% of students go to gymnasium, which is that academic type of school. And admission to gymnasium is definitely quite rigorous and competitive. So, you know, there would be many kids that will not be successful. And this raises another little interesting, it's a bit of a segue, but I think it's an interesting dynamic, is that gymnasiums in, in the Czech Republic, for example, this would be true in most many places in Europe, their public system is quite strong. And the most prestigious gymnasium are public, and they're free. But there's a growing market that's emerged, of private gymnasium that charge fees. And they're basically there for kids from families that have resources to pay for the school fees, but whose kids were not successful getting into the public gymnasium. It's a weird kind of little development that actually, in a way, ties in with with the study that Michael and I have have published about, you know, that private school, public school, plus the the tracking.
0: That is quite fascinating. And thinking beyond systems that are differentiated by these different tracks, such as things called like comprehensive education, where every every child goes to the same sort of type of schooling and you don't necessarily get tracked, you can still have sort of some of this inequality crop up in those systems too. Is that correct? Yeah, I think it's um, probably pretty common that
1: there are variations of tracking within comprehensive systems. So, for example, there may be different levels of mathematics that are offered to students. Once you get to senior levels of high school, maybe different levels of, you know, languages or literature. And then, you know, most likely be special education stream as well within those systems. In Australia, we also have selective schools, which are our public schools that entrance is gained through academic merit. But again, the curriculum is actually the same in those schools as it is the the neighboring comprehensive high school. There's certainly uh, tracks within comprehensive schooling systems.
0: And I guess private tutoring would really play a role in something like that where you can take these exams to get into a selective comprehensive school. But it depends on if you're able to study and get good tutors for a long time before you take that exam.
1: There's an industry for that here in
0: Australia, in New South Wales and in Sydney in particular.
1: Uh, There's quite an industry for tutors and uh, young people are often being tutored from a very young age in primary school to be prepared for the tests, where in New South Wales they are in grade, end of grade five I think. Um, Mm. So there's a a lot of competition. The vast majority of kids don't get through the test, and I I guess sounding similar to uh, what Laura was saying um, in the Czech Republic, um, then the next alternative is to attend a a high fee private school. That's often what happens if you can afford that.
0: Why? I wonder why parents think that's a sort of second best option.
1: I guess there's a lot of reporting in the media of school results, end of school results, in particular tertiary entrance uh, ranking is reported quite a bit and schools certainly promote that in their marketing as well so there is one particular selective school here in New South Wales that dominates the top student results every year and has done for since it's opened and then the next few schools are usually some elite private schools and then it's a mixture from there of public and private
2: I just got one little thing to add on to that is that Michael you would probably know this a bit more than I do but I think in Australia the default higher status type of schooling is private and the public selective school system, while it has a tradition in New South Wales, has really grown in the last couple of decades as a way for the public school system to compete for desirable students. So it's kind of that flip. It's like the default good, highly valued, is private. But yet you have these selective schools as a way to kind of compete for those students. And, and so for many families, they're looking at, you know, we can save maybe $300,000 if our child gets into the selective public school versus the, the high fee private school.
0: And so what about other countries? Like, what do we know about socioeconomic status and sort of segregation by different tracks? Like what else do we know about it in different countries?
1: The research which has looked into that shows that there's quite a strong relationship between tracking and socioeconomic status. Simply be, I think there's a a couple of factors behind that. One is, you know, the relationship between academic achievement and socioeconomic background. So students who do well on the test tend to be from higher socioeconomic status families. And so those are the students who who get into the academic streams in differentiated systems, uh, at, at the same time, families from different social backgrounds may have different expectations and values around, you know, their expectations for their children's futures and their occupations. And so then that also differentiates, uh, the sort of families which may apply for an academic test to get into an academic stream versus families who may intentionally, um, pursue a vocational stream for their children. There is a quite a strong relationship. It's been, it's been shown consistently, um, with PISA assessments that systems that track students into different types of schools. There's quite a strong relationship between the type of school and the, and the social background of a, of a child.
0: And so in your particular study in this paper, what did you actually look at in this sort of larger phenomenon that we've been discussing?
1: What we looked at, what's called the socioeconomic compositional effect, which is the effect of the socioeconomic status of your peers on your academic achievement. So I guess there's two levels there. There's your own family background, which is predictive of academic achievement. And then there's the socioeconomic status of your school, which is also predictive of academic achievement. So we looked at that, that level two effect and how that differed among developed countries. And we found there was quite a bit of difference among developed countries. And then we looked at policy settings that might that moderate or or vary the strength of the compositional effect among uh, developed countries.
0: So, in terms of some of these developed countries, what did the differences look like? Well, quite low, really,
1: on one end of the spectrum, in terms of the effect of um, school composition. Uh, Those at the other end, it was basically a standard deviation difference in in the effect of school composition uh, between developed countries.
0: So, and what countries would be on that more extreme end?
1: So, right at that extreme end, it's the Netherlands, uh, Japan, and um, Belgium would be right at that end.
0: So, those... Countries, the Netherlands, Japan, are on the on one end, and and what are the, some of the countries on the the lower end? So at the lower end, they tend to be Nordic countries, and then and then
1: one uh, kind of difference was Spain had the lowest effect in terms of school composition uh, on predicting you know academic achievement in their school system. Um, but besides Spain, then the, the rest of the countries at that very low level were Nordic countries or tended to be Nordic countries.
0: So looking at some of these, you know. Cross national comparisons. Did anything jump out at you, like surprise you?
1: I guess this research for me was a bit of an eye opener as I was not very familiar with tracking and tracked school systems. Um, I mean, my personal background, you know, in Australia, I went through comprehensive public education and uh, I became familiar with this, but it wasn't until I did this research where I really became aware of uh, how different school systems are internationally in terms of differences in curriculum offerings, particularly to secondary school students. Um, And so I guess I was surprised at how different the school compositional effect is, particularly in European countries compared to Nordic countries and English-speaking countries as well. It's almost like a if you wanted to group countries into different levels of this effect, the weakest effect is amongst Nordic countries. And then you're looking at English speaking countries and then European countries, which there's quite a spread even amongst um, European countries in the size of this right. effect.
0: In terms of then looking at these systems and sort of the, the national policies that guide these systems, you know, are there any policy settings that are associated with these differences that you're finding?
1: So we found two policy settings that predicted these differences. One was uh, age of tracking. So the younger Uh, a decision is made around what track a student goes into, the stronger the school compositional effect is in a country. Uh, And the other predictor was the proportion of students in public education. So the higher the proportion of students in public schools, the lower was the school compositional effect.
0: Based on those insights, what's the policy implications that you could draw from that?
1: Um, I think reforms around increasing the age at which young people have to make a decision or families or school systems have to make a decision around the type of curriculum uh, people are studying, I think that is an obvious one. I and mean, There have been reforms around that. In European countries, and there are some research showing that that has um, improved opportunities for people from disadvantaged backgrounds. There's there's actually some economic research around that, looking at post-school outcomes and income outcomes for people in our systems where there's some history and a change um, around that. So certainly delaying the age at which young people are attracted into vocational versus a- academic uh, streams, particularly making that choice beyond compulsory school age, I think is fairly important. I don't know about you, but I mean, for me as an individual, I had no interest in university until I got into my last year of high school. Um, and that didn't matter because I was in a comprehensive school system and I had, it gave me that flexibility to be able to make a choice at that stage. And I think that's, for many young people, that's what they need. So that's one way of um, addressing this as a problem. And I think another is to look at ways of promoting and encouraging public education in national school systems and moving away from some of the market-based reforms, where you're trying to introduce competition between public and private schools through, you know, funding, you know, creating vouchers, things like that. Um, Those things, uh, those sorts of policies create segregation within school systems as well. And then that segregation increases the school compositional effect.
0: Do you think some of these compositional effects go beyond socioeconomic status, like also in terms of, uh, you know, race or ethnicity or, you know, other, some of the other factors that you brought up that can be found within education systems?
1: Our paper focused purely on socioeconomic status, um, but there's certainly research that does look at race, and obviously there's a lot of research in the United States that's looked at racial segregation within a public education system. I think migration status is probably a factor as well, but that one would vary between countries as well. So some school systems, so for example, here in Australia, students from migrant backgrounds actually score higher in academic achievement than students who were born here in Australia. Uh, Whereas in other countries, it's it's the opposite. So I would imagine in countries where, you know, migrant students are scoring lower, in systems where they are being segregated, you would see that effect
0: on school composition. And do we know anything about sort of non-developed countries, you know, low and middle income countries? Um, Is is there any research about a similar topic of, you know, the socioeconomic composition effect on students in, in those countries? There's been some
1: research, but certainly none that compares systems to look for policies that moderate that effect amongst low income countries. So uh, yeah, unfortunately, no, there's not a lot of research in that area, but there certainly is research that shows that school compositional effects are impacting school systems in developing countries, um, in low-income countries, but not enough. I
0: think the private international school market is sort of exploding in Asia and in particular China right now. And I just wonder if there's, you know, just future research, there'd be so much to explore in this sort of regard across a wider range of countries in a way.
1: Uh, yeah, most definitely. And I guess in, in my mind, in a, in a system where there are fees that are charged for entering into schools, that creates a barrier based on family income, even if the fees are low. And that to me, in my mind, I would imagine that that would predict some level of school segregation. It certainly does in developed countries.
2: I guess just to follow up on that idea of of fees, I mean, I agree completely. And whenever a school charges fees, that's sending a signal that, you know, it's this idea of you you get what you pay for kind of idea. So if you have to pay for something, it's, it's better. And I think that sentiment is alive and well in many contexts, in many countries, not everywhere. Like I said, in in some countries, if you have to pay for it, it means you weren't smart enough to go to the the real one, you know, the one that's free. So, and you see this in universities in Europe as well. I mean, uh, university education is free in many European countries, but it's rationalized. It's hard to get into. And then there's a whole then secondary private kind of university uh, setting that exists for students who weren't able to get into the free universities. I think Japan's probably like this too. So so the, the issue of fees is, is an interesting one. And one thing that I found interesting from, from our study was looking at Holland where there's a very large proportion of, of private school students, but and I'm not a hundred percent sure about this, but I believe those schools are private in the sense that they're privately managed. But they don't charge fees they receive the same kind of per capita uh, student funding as as public schools would again i'm not 100 percent sure about that but i do think for the most part that private schooling in in the netherlands is is more about catholic schools versus other schools and it's same in ireland same in the uk so for me the fact that you could still have large school composition effects, even when there's not a big fee issue going on, for me was interesting and a bit sobering. And that's something I think that needs that could be certainly, you know, looked into further.
0: It brings us back to the beginning about this issue of meritocracy, because it really does some of these findings really begin to challenge the discourse that we might have around schools as being social levelers and when in fact what you're finding is that no, it's not necessarily the case and socioeconomic status is so hugely important to the compositional effect of of schools.
1: Yeah I would hope we would still want to see schools as an opportunity for social leveling but we also have to be aware of the current realities and the limitations that we have in those systems and if I mean if we truly want schools to be a place where equal opportunities are offered then we have to address have to address those barriers. And currently in many developed countries, um, schooling systems are actually entrenching inequality and, and, and contributing to intergenerational social inequality. If we want to have that social opportunity to be equal, then
0: we have to address those barriers. Well, Michael Cipher and Laura Perry, thank you so much for joining Fresh Ed. Thanks, Will. Thank you. Michael Cipher is a PhD student at Murdoch University where Laura Perry is a professor. Their latest article appears in Comparative Education. If you're a PhD student and want to appear on Fresh Ed, please get in touch by visiting our website. A transcript of today's interview can be found at freshedpodcast.com. Please note that opinions expressed on Fresh Ed are solely those of the host or the guest interviewed, not Fresh Ed, which takes no institutional position. If you've liked what you've heard today, please rate us wherever you listen to podcasts. Reviews really do help. FreshEd's team includes Sherry Yang, Fatih Aktas, Oba Femi Ongunle, Dion Jiang, Annabella Afroboteng, Anya Lin, Phyllis Che Mensa, and Jose Neto. Original music for FreshEd was created by Digital Primate. FreshEd is an independently run podcast without advertisements and is made possible by the support of the Open Society Foundations, NORAG, the ShockDev Family Fund, and listeners like you. Please consider donating to FreshEd. By visiting freshedpodcast.com/slash/donate. Thanks for listening. I'm Will Brem, and I'll be back next week.